Today's reading is from the book of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. As he, Jesus, walked along, he saw a a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back, able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but is someone like him? He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. It was uh, was quite a week. Um, It um, it always seems seems like a full week to me, and uh, there's always a lot going on. Uh, That may just be my perspective as a newsaholic. Um, Obviously, we had the midterms elections on Tuesday. Uh, I've been processing and praying over that, the wins, the losses, the the still-to-be-decided. Uh, the ways it impacts us very particularly here. Some of you work on the Hill. Um, some of you may soon work on the Hill. Um, but also reflecting on what our politics says about who we are as a nation and as a people uh, and who we aren't yet. Then some of you know that I lived in California right before I moved to D.C. and I've been thinking of friends still there. Uh, in addition to another couple of massive wildfires, one in Northern California, one in Southern California. Uh, There was another shooting, this time in Thousand Oaks, and I was really saddened to see some friends of mine share that friends of theirs uh, were among those who had lost someone, their daughter, a freshman at Pepperdine. And so I've been processing and praying over that too, been grieving for those who will never see their loved ones again and asking God, in the words of the psalmist, how long? How long will we be afflicted by this uniquely American sickness? Uh, this past week, speaking of migrants, I had friends who visited with and brought food to the, uh, the Honduran migrant caravan that's in me- Mexico, and so I've had them on my mind. I've been thinking about uh, the desperation and longing for a safe place to call home, and dwelling on the haunting words of Jesus who will say to some of us, away from me, for I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. And finally, today is Veterans Day, uh, or what some other countries call Remembrance Day or Armistice Day. And this year is particularly poignant because it marks 100 years since the end of World War I. And on this day, I give thanks for those who serve to protect our freedoms, those who endure long stretches away from their loved ones. Um, But honestly, it makes me long even more for the day when Christ comes again and when war will no longer be needed to keep peace. The day when, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, God shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They will make their weapons of violence into tools that give life. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. 
So I've been feeling a lot this week trying to write this message. And I think today's passage has something to say to all of our lives and to our world right now. Um, but I would like to begin by asking us to join in prayer together over all, all of the things that are going on in our world. Um, I'm sure there are things that you can think of as well that I haven't even named. And we're praying not, just as, not as a way of excusing ourselves, not as a way of absolving our responsibility to love well in action, but because sometimes it can be overwhelming to face the enormity of the task before us. And the first thing we need to do in those circumstances is to turn to the God who is bigger than any of the obstacles that we might face. So would you join me in praying? God, it can be overwhelming enough as a human being to look at the things that we're aware of and not know what to do in the midst of that. Um, You literally know everything that's going on. And that is an overwhelming thought. But God, you are also the most able to do something about it. And so we lift up all of these situations before you, these situations where we are in the midst of the struggle and we're asking you for strength to keep going, um, or where we're at the beginning and we have no idea where to get started and we're asking you to, to lead us somewhere and guide us, give us discernment and wisdom All the while, Lord, we're praying as we prayed earlier that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as in heaven. So whatever we're carrying this morning, whatever we're holding in our hearts or on our minds, we lift it to you and ask you to hold us with you. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're almost uh, at the end of our second dive into the the Gospel of John. We started at the beginning of the year. We rolled through the first few chapters. We took a break for spring and summer, and we picked it back up this fall. And we've got two more weeks after today. We'll take a break for Advent, and then we'll be back in the new year. And we'll finish, finally finish the Gospel of John in the spring of 2019. Uh, This second movement is one we've entitled A Story of Life. A Story of Life. And over the last couple months, we've been learning what life really is, how God defines life as opposed to how humans might define it. But more than that, how Jesus offers real and true and timeless life. The Greek word is zoe, referring to the life that is uniquely God's, the life that is offered to us, offered to us in the person of Jesus who embodies this life. And we've seen over and over as the weeks have gone on how this zoe, this life of God, is offered to us in the midst of our bios lives, our physical lives. And I don't know about you, but this week has been one in in which I felt that longing acutely. The longing for God to bring his life into the midst of ours. That is, after all, what it means when we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. Uh, Today's passage is John 9. It's a a long chapter. Uh, We just heard uh, Todd read the first part of it. Uh, But if you have been following along with our reading guide, you may have read it already. And if you haven't, we have some spare copies in case you want to come back to it. But what I'm going to do this morning is to summarize the story, and then I'm going to pull out three points that stood out to me as I was preparing the message. So the Cliff's Notes version of John 9 is this. Jesus heals a blind man, which is the part that Todd read. 
The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they look into the healing. The blind man stands up for himself. The Pharisees put him out of the synagogue, the religious community, and then the blind man chooses to follow Jesus. Now, you may have slightly different highlights. It's a very condensed version of this chapter. Um, But the three words, the three ideas that I want to draw out today are these. Sight, journey, and question. Sight, journey, and question. So the whole chapter, in some ways, is a conversation about sight and blindness. We start with a man who is physically blind, blind since birth, who is seen by Jesus, whose need is seen by Jesus, and whose sight is restored by Jesus. It says, He spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The Pharisees, though they're able to see physically, look into the healing because it doesn't fit into their categories of understanding. They're even more intent on finding fault when they hear that Jesus was involved. And they take it out on the once physically blind man. They question how he was healed. They interrogate his understanding of Jesus, the one who healed him. They even bring his parents in to prove that this is the guy who was formerly blind, verses 18 to 21. The Jews, the, the religious leaders, did not believe that he had been blind. And, they'd received his, and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. The Pharisees, they press the man again. They say, give glory to God. That was a traditional way of saying, tell the truth, basically. Give glory to God. It's sort of a passive-aggressive way of saying, tell the truth. We know this man, Jesus, who healed you, is a sinner. And the man replies with one of my favorite quotes in all of the Bible. I do not know whether he's a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This line which made its way into... Perhaps the most memorable hymn of all time, Amazing Grace, which we heard the adaptation of, I once was blind, but now I see. That's where this comes from. This is where that comes from. I once was blind, but now I see. Here's the difference he made in my life. Call him what you want, but here's what he's done. Say what you will, here's how he turned my life around. I think the most convincing argument for Jesus is what he does in our lives when we let him in. How he transforms us when we follow and obey and emulate him. To me, that's what evangelism is. It's telling the good news of Jesus and how he has changed my life. What difference he has made in my life and what difference, therefore, he can make in yours and yours and yours and in our world. I once was blind, but now I see. But that isn't good enough for the religious leaders. They had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And they continue to interrogate the man. And it's at that point that the man who was born blind sees through the Pharisees. He sees through their ploy. He sees through their self-serving agenda and their lack of compassion disguised as adherence to the law. And he stands up for himself. He says, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? See, I don't think you can read this without hearing the sass. Right? The snark, 
the attitude, the lip that he's delivering to the religious leaders. Do you also want to become his disciples? And they, as unhealthy leaders are wont to do when called out, they get rid of him. They put him out. Put him out of the synagogue. And this is a big deal because it's not as if he could just go down the street and hop into the next synagogue. This is first century Palestine where there was one synagogue in a town and there was one temple in Jerusalem. He was being put out of the worshiping community, excluded from the social and relational and spiritual circles that would have defined him. But Jesus finds him. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him. When he found him, because Jesus seeks out all who have been excluded from the places they should have been included. Jesus offers a community to the one who has been pushed out of the only community he has ever known. Jesus identifies himself to the man who was born blind, and that man worships and follows him, declaring, Lord, I believe, and thus shows himself to not only be able to see physically now, but more importantly, spiritually as well. And so the progression looks like this. Jesus heals a physically blind man. The Pharisees, though able to see physically, they look into the healing. The blind man, figuratively seeing through the Pharisees, stands up for himself. The Pharisees, revealed to be spiritually blind, put him out of the synagogue. And the blind man, now physically and spiritually seeing, follows Jesus. And those who are shown to be truly blind are those who refuse to see what Jesus is doing. Refuse to see who Jesus really is, Messiah. Herder, healer of the hurting, defender of the vulnerable, all the things that we read through in our confession earlier, welcomer of the marginalized, opposer of the proud. And that one strikes close. Because we always think that we see. That we see things as they really are. Right? William Barclay wrote, The Pharisees are typical of the people in every generation who condemn anyone whose idea of religion is not theirs. And while I'm sure we could all think of other people who would fit into that category, we may need to look in a mirror. It should give us pause. Because no one responds well to being told they don't see, right? Or they're not seeing it right. Because we all are, religious or not, prone to thinking we're right. Because if we're not right about something, well, that would mean that uh, we'd need to change something which would mean maybe more change, or an apology, or an admission that we don't know. The thing is, Christians are often the most strident and sure of themselves people in America when we should be the most humble, the most ready to acknowledge we might be wrong, because the whole premise of our faith is that we have it wrong, that we have been wrong, that we have gotten it wrong, and we've done it wrong that we need Jesus to rescue us and to show us a better way, that we need the Holy Spirit to form us in right ways and to lead us in right paths, to make us more like Jesus. And so how might God be calling you to see things differently? How might God be calling you to see things differently? How might we open ourselves to God removing our blindness? I want to suggest a spiritual practice here, and it's just a very elementary one. Pray that God would give you eyes to see as he sees. That's where we start. Pray that God would give us eyes to see 
as he sees. That you might begin to truly see him. That you might begin to truly see others. To see them as God sees them. That you might begin to truly see yourself. To see yourself as God sees you. You can do that first thing in the morning. You can ask God to put his glasses on you. Give you his perspective. But you can, you can do it at any moment when you begin to feel tension rise up in yourself. And maybe a sense of feeling overwhelmed. Maybe a sense of irritation or anger or sadness. It might be when you're reading the news. It might be when you're experiencing a hard day at work. It might be when you're experiencing a relational conflict with a, a friend or a family member. Pause. Ask God to help you truly see. This may be a particularly helpful exercise for some of you as you prepare to spend the holidays with family. Pause and ask God to help you truly see. So that's sight. The second word that came to mind was the word journey. Journey. Every good story, every enthralling narrative has its ups and downs. It has its disappointments and triumphs. And as much as we might think we would prefer not to change because change can be hard or to endure conflict because conflict can be hard or experience loss because loss can be hard or otherwise encounter any form of hardship. As much as it is our instinct to seek comfort and the path of least resistance, I don't think that's what we were made for. And maybe more importantly, it's not how life works. Uh, this weekend, some dear friends got married the groom was someone I had discipled and mentored many uh, years ago, and it meant that I happened to be up in uh, the Columbia Heights and Petworth neighborhoods in Northwest, where I lived during my first few years in D.C. It meant that I was, uh, I was walking around my old stomping grounds, I was seeing places I used to frequent, which triggered memories both wonderful and sad. Uh, I got to reflect a little bit on what those memories, um, on who I was when those memories took place. Uh, I was single, I was in my 20s, I was in much better shape, I was fresh-faced and inexperienced as a pastor, and, and that led me to reflect on what brought me to where I am now, what has shaped me in those intervening years, what has formed me, how I've changed, and why. And honestly, the things that have been difficult and disappointing over those years, the challenges and the conflicts, the heartaches and the hopeless moments have shaped me at least as much as the joys and the highs, and the celebrations, maybe more so. And I mean that they've shaped me in a good way. In fact, every joy, every high, every celebration was made all the richer because it was almost always preceded by a moment of difficulty, a moment of challenge, a moment of heartache. And some of those moments were seasons. And most of those moments or seasons were inexplicable, unexplainable, and not easily resolved, because if they were easily resolved, I would have done it. At the wedding, I was asked to read from a book. I'd, I'd actually introduced to my friend a book that was particularly impactful for me, a book called Waiting by Ben Patterson. And what I read included the important reminder that who we're becoming while we wait is at least as important as what we think we're waiting for. Who we're becoming while we wait is at least as important as what we think we're waiting for. Because God is forming us into the kind of people who can love him with all of our being and love one another with compassion and empathy. 
And that's true in our lives, too. We learn things as we go. We are formed as we go, even in and maybe especially in our, our struggles, our setbacks, and our stumbles. We see this in a few ways in John 9. First, on the journey of transformation and understanding. The man who was born blind, he goes from describing Jesus as just a man, the man called Jesus healed me, verse 11, to calling him a prophet, verse 17, when the Pharisees interrogate him, to a man from God, in verse 33, by the end of his questioning, to Lord, in verse 38, Lord whom he worships. And yet here's the thing, it isn't just the passage of time that forms his understanding of Christ. His insight, his ability to see Jesus for who he is and the Pharisees for who they really are, are part of the journey. See, having spent most of his life blind, he encounters a man called Jesus. Maybe he had heard of him, maybe he hadn't. Regardless, this man, Jesus, heals him, which the Pharisees don't appreciate. And so they question the man, and it's in the course of reasoning with them that he thinks, if Jesus healed me, he must be from God. He must be a prophet. Only a holy man could restore my sight. And when the Pharisees show their true colors and they drive him out of the synagogue, and when Jesus finds him, when Jesus sees him, when Jesus invites him to put his trust in him, the man comes to the only conclusion left to him. Jesus is Lord. Friends, the journey of transformation and maturation is not a straight line to glory. We endure setbacks and stumbles. Sometimes we are set upon, and sometimes we self-sabotage. As much as we might think we want it otherwise, in the words of Thomas Merton, in the spiritual life there are no tricks and no shortcuts. And this applies to us as individuals, but it also applies to us communally as we work to see more of God's kingdom on earth, more of up there, down here. As we align ourselves with the flow of the Spirit and, and set our shoulder to the wheel of justice, no individual progress and no social progress comes without effort or without pushback. We could look at the story and think about it this way. Jesus heals a blind man. That's progress. The Pharisees, they look into the healing. That's pushback. The blind man stands up for himself. That's progress. The Pharisees put him out of the synagogue. That's pushback. At the end of the story, the blind man follows Jesus. Progress. Or maybe to, to point it out using an analogy from our country's history. We had slavery. Some have called America's original sin. We saw progress, the rise of the abolitionist movement with folks like Frederick Douglass, whose home in Anacostia you should absolutely visit if you haven't yet. Harriet Tubman, William Lloyd Garrison, Sojourner Truth, and even preachers like Charles Finney. Progress. Post-Civil War, Jim Crow laws were enacted. Institution, in, instituting segregation as the law of the land in the South. It's pushback. We saw the rise of the civil rights movement, progress. You know, that was only 60 years ago. But that was followed by what author Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, the age of mass incarceration, where our nation, while making up just 4% of the world's population, incarcerates 22% of the world's prisoners. 4% of the world's population 22% of the world's prisoners, including disproportionately high rates and numbers of black and brown women and men, pushback. 
But more recently, we are seeing an effort to combat these injustices, including uh, Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice Initiative, which works to represent those who may have been wrongly convicted and poor folks who can't afford representation. It includes restorative justice movements around the country focusing on rehabilitation, reconciliation, and restoration rather than just punishment. Or even including what we just saw this past week as voting rights were restored to over a million Floridians who had served their time. No progress, no transformation, individual or social, comes without effort or without pushback. Let us not then be surprised that the journey has its ups and downs. That it has its swamps and traps and even ambushes as well as its highways and open roads. If we are to have a journey mindset then, then what? Know where you're going and know what will keep you on course. Know where you're going and know what will keep you on course. That's Jesus, by the way. On an individual level, that's Jesus. That's who we're called to become. That's call, who we're called to be more like. That's true for any of us who call ourselves Christians. Like sailors in the olden days who would orient themselves by the North Star, no matter how many times they were blown off course, orient yourself by our North Star, Christ himself Keep coming back to him, keep reading his words, keep seeing how he treated people. Keep allowing him to challenge your thoughts and your actions. Keep talking with him in prayer. Keep Christ in front of you. On a communal or a social level, when you think about the world, it's, it's the kingdom of God. It's what life looks like when God is in charge. But here's the helpful thing. That's also most clearly demonstrated in Jesus. What he said, what he did, how he lived, how he loved. That's how we know what the kingdom looks like. That's how we know who to stand up for and who to stand up to. And so in the midst of life's ups and downs, in the midst of social progress and regress, in the midst of chaos and celebration in community, keep your eyes on Jesus. Know where we're going and know what will keep us on course. The last concept I want to talk about today is, is question. And it involves going back to the beginning of the passage, probably to a question you've had since you read this or since we read this earlier. How do we understand suffering? What do we do in the face of suffering? As he walked along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They must have been familiar with the man because they knew he had been blind from birth. Maybe he was a fixture on the route. And the disciples asked Jesus a question that might seem odd, maybe even a little primitive to us. Was this man's blindness caused by his parents or himself? See, sin and suffering were linked for Jews in the first century, and, and even before then, if you know the arguments that Job's friends trot out in the Old Testament. If suffering is caused by sin, then the logical question is, whose sin caused the suffering so that it might be confessed of and forgiven, which might lead to restoration and healing? And the thing is, sin does lead to suffering. It may not always be a direct cause and effect. We may not always see a clear correlation, but sin always leads to suffering of some kind, to death of some kind. It might be a death of a relationship. Maybe death of trust. 
Maybe death of innocence. And sometimes it's helpful to ask why. Sometimes that actually helps us uncover the truth and to course correct, to repent and believe. The disciples thought they were asking the right question. That maybe they genuinely wanted to help the man find freedom. But it isn't quite that simple. It's rarely that simple, which Jesus makes clear. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Thank you, Jesus. Enough with that nonsense. But then he goes on. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Wait, what? At least on the surface, that seems to be saying that the only reason this man was born and lived his whole life with this impairment was that Jesus could show up however many years later and heal him so that God could get a little bit of an ego boost, which sounds awfully like the capricious gods of Greek and Roman mythology. It leads also it leads to everything happens for a reason, theology, and getting all twisted up in knots, trying to explain how a good God wreaks terrible things on those he loves. We usually end up with a line like it's a mystery, or God's ways are higher than our ways. And yes, God's ways are higher than our ways. And there are countless things that we will never fully understand. But I don't see, in Scripture, I don't see Jesus inflicting pain and devastation on others in order to get credit for healing them. That seems pretty narcissistic and easily seen through. And if Jesus doesn't do that, then we know God doesn't do that. Because Jesus has said in previous chapters that he only does what he sees his Father doing, and because we know that Jesus is what God looks like in human form. So how do we understand what Jesus says? Scholars offer several suggestions on how to read this. There's one reading which would say, well, the glory of God lies in his compassion. So any opportunity that Christ has to show compassion is an opportunity for his glory to be revealed. It's not saying anything about why it happened. Or to consider it another way, affliction, sorrow, pain, disappointment, and loss are always opportunities for displaying God's grace. Whether that's taking the form of us trusting God in the midst of suffering or struggle or others showing us, demonstrating to us, being to us the grace of God and their care for us. Another way of looking at it, though, is that punctuation matters. In the original Greek, there wasn't punctuation. That was added and inferred subsequently. So, one possible suggestion, one plausible suggestion for the English translation reads like this. Instead of, this is the translation, this is how it was uh, originally. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's, work might, God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. Instead of that, it would read, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind, period. So that God's works might be revealed in him, comma, we must work the works of him who sent me. You see the difference? That Jesus is dismissing the suggestion that sin is the cause of the man's suffering. He states the fact that he was born blind and therefore not responsible for sinning himself into his particular state. And he's issuing a challenge and a call to his disciples. So that God might be glorified in this situation, we must do the work of God which is in this case the work of healing. 
This is the sense I get from Eugene Peterson in the message. He says, Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. Now, the question of why is this happening, it, it can be helpful. And the answer, as I said earlier, may well lie in what good we can do. Maybe for others. Maybe at some point in the future. In her book, Sacred Wounds, which I would also recommend, Teresa Pasquale Matus wrote, I think the benefit of moving through suffering is leaving a trail behind the crumbs of hope and healing so others can see it as possible to get better, not just in theory, but in reality. Sometimes it's, it's, it's helpful to know the why so that we can change it up. But often in life, often enough anyway, we won't know why something is happening. Not for a long time anyway. There won't be a clear causal connection. And we can tie ourselves in logical and theoretical knots coming up with a why. When the question we should be asking, the question we can always be asking is, what now? As in, what would God have us do now? In 1963, a bomb exploded at 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama killing four little black girls. In that case, unlike in the story in the, of the man born blind, there was an obvious sin, racism and hatred, and obvious perpetrators, not just the individuals responsible, but the system responsible for breeding such individuals. In that case, knowing the why was a key component in knowing the what now. But there are a couple of things that Dr. King said in his eulogy for the martyred girls that struck me as applicable in every situation, including this one, and perhaps yours as well. The second thing I'm going to keep till later on, but the first thing he said was this, God still has a way of wringing good out of evil. God still has a way of wringing good out of evil. Think about that picture. Wringing good out of evil. And oftentimes that way is through us his hands and feet, through us, the body of Christ, through us, the ones in whom the Holy Spirit lives and through whom the Holy Spirit acts, through us, image bearers and representatives of God. Now, there are tragedies that are inexplicable. There are heartaches that we can't even begin to pick at because the wounds are still too fresh, or the pain is still too real, or well, the grief is still too raw, even if it has been bottled up for a while. What I am not doing is downplaying those very real feelings and saying we should just get on with something. Sometimes the answer to what now is to sit with God in that space of grief and loss and pain. As I've been sitting in my feelings this week, that is the question I've been sitting with. What now? Knowing I can't do everything, what would God have me do now? There may be an area of your life in which you are caught up in the why, and you need to be asking instead, what now? What is the healing, liberating, justice-seeking, enemy-loving, compassionate work that God is calling you to? 
Rabbi Abraham Heschel said, God is hiding in the world. Our task is to let the divine emerge from our deeds. To let the divine emerge from our deeds. Asking what now will necessitate some listening so that you can actually pay attention to what God may say. And then it will require action. And it will require courage. See, the parents of the man born blind, I don't know if you noticed this, but they don't actually stick up for their son. They sort of hang him out to dry. They said, you ask him, he's old enough to fend for himself. And John the Gospel writer tells us that they said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They were afraid. Henry Nouwen says, fear is one of the most effective weapons in the hands of those who seek to control us. A father, a mother, a teacher, a doctor, a boss, a bishop, a pastor, a church, or God. I might add politicians and parties into that mix. As long as we are kept in fear, we can be made to act, speak, and even think as slaves. We will be tempted for self-preservation's sake, if for nothing else, to err on the side of fear rather than faith. To close off rather than open up. To take the path of least resistance rather than the path of self-sacrifice. But as Nelson Mandela learned, courage is not the absence of fear, it is the triumph over it. It's being afraid to do a task and doing it anyway. Doing it afraid. And so perhaps the supplemental question to what now and what gets God asking of you is where do you need to act in the face of fear? Where are you afraid? And you might need to do it anyway. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath knowing it would aggravate his enemies. But he did it anyway because that's what would give glory to God. That's what would usher in a little more of God's kingdom. And in so doing, he demonstrated the importance of asking the right questions and how asking the right questions can lead us to the right actions. There were a lot of things I didn't unpack from the story today, a lot of parts that were left on the cutting room floor. There were a lot of things I didn't say that I wanted to and a lot of things that God kept me from saying. Even, even then, I know I've, I've said a lot, or at least I've used a lot of words, Ultimately, though, each of us will hear what God wants us to hear. I believe that. I believe that the Holy Spirit will impress certain things upon us, words or phrases or quotes or concepts or images or feelings, and sometimes that impression comes through discomfort. And something rubs you the wrong way and forces you to ask why and what God would have you do with that feeling. And sometimes that impression comes through encouragement and a reminder. In each case, the invitation is the same as the one Jesus offered the man born blind. Believe. Trust me. Follow me. Come learn life from me. Let me live life with you. I want to invite the band to come up. Um, they're going to lead us in a few songs of reflection and response. And as they do that, let's ask the Spirit to do the work of God in us and then through us. Let's ask the Spirit to do the work of God in us and then through us. If you are in need of prayer for any reason, we have prayer stations and prayer councils available in either corner. Uh, we won't be taking communion uh, this week as we'll have community lunch afterwards. 
if you just want to come down here and use this rug as an altar to be before God, you can do that. And as we do that, or before we, we step into that time, I want to read what Dr. King said at the end of his eulogy for the martyred girls as a reminder. He said, now, I say to you in conclusion, life is hard. At times as hard as crucible steel. It has its bleak and difficult moments. Like the ever-flowing waters of the river, life has its moments of drought and its moments of flood. Like the ever-changing cycle of the seasons, life has the soothing warmth of its summers and the piercing chill of its winters. And if one will hold on, he or she will discover that God walks with them and that God is able to lift you from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope and transform dark and desolate valleys into sunlit paths of inner peace. Let it be, Lord, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.